Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap. I got into the movie making business by being a real estate entrepreneur, but also because I'm a big movie fan. I get a huge kick out of watching blockbuster movies that I watch being made at Black Hall. COVID-19 has put a temporary crimp in production, hasn't it for everybody? But some amazing movies will be shooting at our studio soon and I'll have some amazing folks on the podcast. I'm also into ethics and philosophy and I think you'll see those themes throughout the podcast. So you're wondering, where exactly does the movie business and philosophy come together? That's the journey I want to take you on on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'll bring you guests from both worlds, and I think you'll be surprised at how much philosophy goes into the world of making movies. Plus, you'll get an inside look at the new Hollywood of the South right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Give a listen. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. I'm happy to have you along for the ride on the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today on the podcast, I welcome former team captain and author Arshea Cooper. Arshea shares his experiences growing up on Chicago's west side in the 1990s and how the sport of crew changed his life and the lives of those around him. A Benjamin Franklin award-winning author of A Most Beautiful Thing, Cooper has a new documentary out by the same title. You're going to want to watch it, especially after you hear this interview. I'm Ryan Millsap. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast. This is a story that begins and ends in Chicago. It starts with the race, a rowing race, the Chicago Sprints. A team from the west side of Chicago is headed to the water. Yeah, that's right, the west side. And for so long, the terrain of favorite sons of famous families in places far, far away from the west side, light years away. Until today, beyond winning or losing, past the sound of the start and the cheer of the crowd, the history they'll make today is simple, that they survived. Manly, Lincoln Park, attention, go! Hi, this is Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today, we are really fortunate to have Mr. Arshay Cooper. Arshay, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, you have been an award-winning author, a motivational speaker, an activist, and you recently uh, produced a movie about uh, your experience with rowing. Pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a lot of buzz. You, no one expected it for the sport of rowing, but uh, a lot of buzz. <laughs> the name of the movie is A Most Beautiful Thing. What made you name this movie A Most Beautiful Thing? Yeah, I think when you hear uh, Chicago and black men in the media, it, it's, it's not a beautiful thing. And I, I wanted to highlight the things that, well, the stories that are never told that black men who, 
teach their sons how to row, black men who who hire young black men in their neighborhoods, black men who overcame their fear of swimming and who who contributes to their, uh, their community, but through the water, through the sport, and a million other things. And I thought that story was important, and we thought that title uh, was perfect. Tell me a little about culturally, um, in the African-American community, the relationship with water. Right in the, in the, I watched the movie that you said. I thought it was beautifully done. And one of the things I thought was so interesting is how everybody just assumed that nobody wanted to go in the water. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things. There's a history there um, with that. You know, I mean, the time of segregation and Jim Crow laws not being having access to a pool and, uh, and, you know, and just and when we finally did, especially in Chicago, that it was only four feet pools where people were just standing there. And once uh, it expanded, we were told not to go into deep. Right. So there was always this fear uh, of of water for for most. But um but we also knew that there was life, right? And growing up in Black culture, water was related to baptism, right? And so kind of always knew in the back of my head there's some kind of life behind it, but wasn't wasn't sure. But when Rowan came to my school and we were like, no, we're not doing, we're not being, you know, not being pushed out in open water in, in a boat, you know? And so uh, a lot of people turned away and there was a couple of kids who could swim. Um, but once we got out there, it was... It, it it was just downloading uh, for us uh, of of serenity and peace and love and all those great things. Hmm. How does love and serenity fit into rowing? Yeah, I think it's the you know when you in a, a sport like rowing, there's no cheerleaders, there's no million dollar contracts after college, there's no pep rally, no busload of fans. And what you do find is a group of guys that show up every day with no agenda for themselves and the person who sits behind them. They break their backs, they rip their hands. And I mean, you get nothing out of it, but just pure brotherhood. And that's, we, we found that that was the kind of people we wanted to be around, right? And so when you pushed out into that open water, and we were all tough guys, you had to be tough in our neighborhood. And when you push out into open water the first time, we saw fear in each other, right? And we kept in survival mode kind of kicked in and it told us like to get back to this dock safely, you have to pull together. And when we start pulling together, we started listening. And what the coach would tell you is to sit tall, breathe, relax, and then it become meditative. And then that magical rhythm kick in, right? And there's no police sirens, right? There's you know, you don't you you don't hear the craziness that you usually hear in the neighborhood, but you're just following each other, right? And the sound of the blade hitting the water, and that constant motion for two hours becomes healing, and um and, and that's that was a feeling that we wanted to experience every day. Some people meditate thirty hours a day, and it, I mean thirty minutes a day, and it changed their lives. But for us, two hours a day was special. Yeah, I know you've referred to rowing as pure meditation, and it sounds like that explanation you're giving starts to put meat on that. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's a lot of suffering. It's hard work. It's laboring. Right. But, you know, our coach goal first was to, to be good humans, to be contributors to our community and then fast boat. So he started off with this idea of it being meditative before we start competing. Do you think shared suffering is the foundation of true brotherhood? Uh, could be, you know, you think about, I think about the time where 
soldiers went to war many, many years ago. And even when there was a disconnect between those who were black and those who were white, right? And they somehow fight together and, and suffer through all the things they suffer, loss and working as a team and all the hard work and labor they had to put in. And they had this bond that kind of lasted a long time. And for us, it was the same way. We went to regattas. We was isolated. We were the only ones that looked like us. And, um, you know, and we worked hard and we went through a lot of loss together and wins together and the same pain. We share the same pain, right? You kind of understand each other at a different level that no one else understands. What are the virtues you think that you learned and maybe the whole team learned as a, as a rowing team that then carried you guys into life in a different way post rowing? Yeah, I think uh, a few lessons. I think, you know, number one is uh, we understood uh, that we, you can't do the, when there's eight people in a boat, you can't do the work of eight people, but you need eight people to do the work and you'll get that much faster, right? That you have to be there for each other, that we have to show up that even outside of the boat in life to get anywhere that we need to be doing it together, right? And, and, and you see those guys, a lot of the guys on the team are entrepreneurs, right? They understood how to build the team and how to get folks working together. And I think the second thing is learning. We all were leaders individually, right? But rowing took all these leaders and made them into followers. We had to follow each other. So I think we learned how to also follow, although we are leaders, to even learn more, to get to the other, to get to where we want to go. And then just... Um, you know, learn to trust, even when it's hard, right? Um, we learned that. And I think the, the biggest lesson in, in a sport that you learn is leave the boathouse better than you found it, right? And and leave the stroke better than you found it. So every day you show up, you want to leave your teammate with just what you say better than you found that person or the boathouse better than you found it, or you want to leave the world better than you found it. And so that's the lessons that we try to use every day. Now, I, I know that in the movie uh, at the beginning, it's about when you guys were rowers in high school. And then by the end, it's, you know, looking at you guys doing some rowing as adults. Was there continuity there? Did you continue with rowing your entire adult life? The guys didn't. I did in the sense of, um, you know, I spent years um, trying to give opportunity to access to communities like I grew up in and all over the country. So when I go visit a city and I'm recruiting kids to row, um, or I'm getting, you know, trying to get, you know, young kids recruited to college, like I go out and get on the water with them and, uh, you know, spend some time in the boat with, uh, with friends that I visit in different cities. But those guys haven't rowed in 20 years. So uh, getting them back in a boat uh, was mainly because they wanted to show their kids and their families that what they did 20 years ago. One of the things when I was watching this, um, really, I guess, documentary that you made that struck me and that I've been reflecting on since I watched it, which is how do you think the white country club sports are somehow teaching different values than some of the more um, traditional team sports? Do you, do you see... A distinction there or do you think that there's something to be said about these white country club sports that needs to be integrated into all of society yeah i i think that the lessons of teamwork and uh brotherhood or sisterhood are the same i think with these sports just given just being able to have an opportunity 
to get out the community for a little while, right? When it comes to water or, or climb, rock climbing or water polo or rugby, I think it, it gives you an opportunity just to step out of your community for a little bit and see what else is uh, out there. Remember, a lot of us never even been downtown, right? Until the sport of, of world income. You, you're in your class, you, you, you go to school, you're in your classroom all day, and then you have the traditional sports, you leave your classroom and you go straight to the gym room. And straight to the gym room, you hang out in the neighborhood after practice and then you go back home. These other sports kind of give you an opportunity to travel and, and interact. You know, I didn't think I can get along with people who didn't look like me, but, you know, I, I began to interact with other folks once I tried the new sport. And so um, I, I think it's the opportunity just to see different things that you normally don't see. Was that neighborhood so segregated that you didn't have white friends growing up? Oh, Chicago was super segregated. Not even, you know, white friends, that, not even uh, friends that were um uh, Latin, you know, in Chicago, there's this Vidoc that kind of separate different communities. You have the white neighborhood, black neighborhood, Hispanic neighborhood, Asian neighborhood. And um, so, you you know, you didn't you, you didn't have those friends, you know, and it, it wasn't until we went downtown and we shared a boathouse with a few private schools. And again, it, you know, it wasn't like we that was a friendship right away. But, you know, you have these stereotypes of other neighborhoods because you really never interact with them. So in that process, did you make some white friends? Yeah. Later on, um, we, you know, we were competitors at first, but we shared the same boathouse. And um, eventually, as we broke the ice and uh, raced against each other and, and started sharing the locker room, I uh, started interacting with white friends and, and also started noticing th- some things that, that we don't have, right? The, the haves and haves nots, right? Like, wow, that. You know, we got to catch two buses to practice. These guys shows up in, in, in nice rides every day, right, to, to practice. And, you know, and you start having conversations about about certain things. You see, like, their boats are better. Their, uh, their, their coaches were Olympians, right? You, you start to notice a big difference when you interact. But, you know, they also learn a lot more about who we are, too, as well. What are some of the things that, when you reflect on that experience of growing up without white friends – and then starting to make white friends, what were, what were some of the big re- realizations or yeah, what I, were some of the interesting things about, you know, it's basically like cross-cultural relationships. It's no different than an American who grows up with all American friends and then goes and makes friends with a German. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest thing, for, I think the guys have different questions for that. But for me, the biggest thing was, you know, our, it wasn't in our neighborhood. It just wasn't a disconnect between different gangs or disconnect also between the black community and, and the police department. Right. And so I was that kid who'd never been suspended, never got in trouble ever. You know, I was just that kid and I still had my face pressed down the police car numerous of times. Right. And I thought to myself, well, maybe just because it's the neighborhood I live in. And then when I started interacting with the other guys and I would go to their neighborhood in the West loop or the, or the, or the suburbs and play video games, leave my, you know, leave their place and police pull over and check my backpack because they think I'm still in that neighborhood. And I'm like, wow, it's, I'm not just getting pulled over in my neighborhood, but also in other places, right? And I remember asking them, like, did this ever happen to you guys? Or when you guys go on your regattas, when you guys go on your race trips and you go into a gas station, do the white cashier tell you guys to come in one at a time because they want to make sure that no one's stealing? Or have you ever been on the elevator and a woman held her purse tight or those kind of things? And I'm like, no. And that's when I kind of realized, like, man, I'm as a young person, like, I'm living in a different, a different America than these guys, you know? And then they realize it, right? 
And coaches understood that. And coaches wasn't the one who broke that ice. Like we had, I, we had to break that ice, and we started learning, right, uh, and talking about those things um, at the boathouse. In the documentary, I noticed that you had a, a, a little bit of a kind of a pastoral spirit in the way that like you would go to your friend's house every day and make sure that he was coming to the boathouse. Where did that come from? Do you know, have you always been that way? I have not always been that way. You know, I, you know, I was, you know, I was an angry kid. Um, you know, I was like, you know, just because of my environment, I was, I used to say to myself, God is this everywhere, but the West side of Chicago. And, you know, my mother was, uh, you know, on drugs and then she went into recovery when I was 14. And I remember visiting her after six months, I didn't see her. And she just was singing at this church and she just looked so well and so good. And for the first time, I believe like there, there is hope. Right. And, and she came home and she was amazing. And we started watching these TV shows and we started, she started forcing us to read. Right. And we didn't like reading, but we started watching these shows like a different world and, um, um, Family Matters and Fresh Pence. And I'm like, wow, these people look like me. They're living well. And so I started believing hope. But the program she was in not don't only work with the kid, but the whole family. And so when we was able to talk through some of those things and have other families in the room and young people that look like me tell their stories, I kind of was like, wow, man, like my friends live in the way I used to live. And so I would love for them to also be in this room having the same conversations that everyone else is high as having. So I think that I seen these young people angry the way I was at one point and how that anger went away. I just wanted them to experience the same thing. And so that's how that happened. You know, I, I'm, I'm just finishing up a book called Hillbilly Elegy. Have you heard of this book? No, I have not heard of it. You might, you might enjoy it. It's about, uh, it's written by a guy, a white guy who grew up in Kentucky but he grew up in very poor Kentucky mm-hmm. really is what he would consider to be a hillbilly. And he, his family moves to Ohio and they become a little more middle-class, but they would go back to uh, Kentucky a lot. And they lived among the, basically the working poor. And it's his whole, when I'm, when I'm listening to you talk about the West side of Chicago, it's making me think of this, this book and his experiences as a poor white uh, Kentucky child uh, trying to make his way in the world. He went on to Yale Law School and um, has, you know, had a, had a really fascinating journey uh, post his childhood. But one of the things that struck me and, and it strikes me as you're talking is this whole um, notion of awareness, mm. like just how rowing gr- grew your awareness of the greater world and the greater opportunities that might exist out in the world and different ways of living that might out, exist in the world. Would you, would you relate to that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I feel like, like people will say, if it wasn't for Rowan, where would you be? I was like, I'll be fine. But Rowan just made me aware of things and, and saw the world a little differently and kind of changed the way I thought. So I absolutely agree with that. How many places have you put rowing programs in at high schools? Yeah, I mean, numerous of places. I mean, places like Stockton, California, uh, Rochester, um, uh, of course, Chicago, uh, been to Oakland, um, working with Terre Haute, Indiana, 
uh, you know, uh, what else? What else? A, a few and a few other places. I go there. We 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 fundraise. We uh, also New York, of course. We fundraise. Uh, we build partnerships with the public schools. We reach out. We have a community event, and we hire the coaches. And I talk to college coaches and build that partnership. Um, and then we and then I work with the coaches throughout the year, right? And 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 um, you know, some of these coaches are not from, you know, they don't row but they're not from this community. So working with them on the youth development aspect of things and understanding young people and, and hiring people also for that community and, and making sure that these young people are, are, are not only rowing, but uh, have academic support and social emotional learning and everything else they need to be a successful rower. How much does it cost to start a rowing program? Ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, it's, it's, it depends on the city, but I will say, you know, you have to have at least a, uh, starting off uh, at least a $200,000 budget a year. I mean, now in certain communities, it's expensive to play soccer, right? To join a soccer team or soccer club is expensive and all you need is a ball. But imagine the sport of rowing where a boat is the same price as a car, just one boat, not even the oars, not even the insurance to be on the water, not even to pay the, for rent for the bus, the, um, you know, the uh, transportation. And then you have to travel. You race one time in your city, and every other races races outside of your city. So it's it's really expensive. How difficult is it to find coaching in this area? You know, like it, how how difficult to go find good quality rowing coaches? It it is hard, you know. And so people will say, "Oh, you know, there's a lot of programs with kids of color, but they just not that fast," you know. And so. It's hard to work with kids that are not so fa- or recruit kids that are not so fast. And you're like, well, you know, you have, uh, you know, you you don't have you can't afford an Olympic coach. So you have a coach who who love rowing because they son rowed in college and they learn it and they have a passion to work with kids in the community. And so you don't get the best coach. And then the equipment, you know, is is a hand me down from a college that's like 20 years old, right? And so it, it you know, it's 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 hard to find good coaches that that's not only that not only can teach rowing but also really understand youth development and understand the community and understand how to work with young kids that they normally interact with because most of the coaches are white uh in this sport and so it's also training them not only to get kids fast but to also uh how to work with them outside of the boat how has covid affected the rollout of your movie you know what i thought you know, only because we were supposed to be in theaters, right? We were supposed to be in theaters in March, and we didn't make it to theaters. Of course, I would love it to be in a big screen, right? But we didn't get all the press that uh, we wanted, right? Uh, because they said it was rowing, and all the you know all the sports were was happening. You know, people want to cover other sports, but when COVID hit, and we you know, and, and there was no sports. Then all the sports journalists came like, hey, what about this Rowan story? You know, so it helped out when it came to press and media attention. But COVID really affected just the release of the film and being able to go travel and and recruit kids to watch the film and then over to rowing. So that hurt, hurt it in that way. What's your biggest hope around this film? Um, the, my biggest hope is number one, to give kids, um, the roadmap, our roadmap on how we became successful and how we navigate through our hardship and, and adversity. And I think number two is when you watch the film, Pooh said in the barbershop, when they tore down the YMCA's, I ran to the street. 
and he was hanging in the street. But when Rowan came, he went to the team. So, uh, you know, I think talent is equally distributed, but is access and opportunity that is not. So if we can show that, if, you know, people from these cities put their resources together and give access to young people that are talented and that need an opportunity, it, it brings more change to the world. When will you know that all of these efforts, not just like you, but I guess communally you, when will you know that all of the work has been successful relative to trying to help children who are growing up in poverty? For me personally, I think I visit like at least 60 schools a day. I mean, I mean I'm sorry, a year. And when I can go to these places and when I hear from these teachers and hear from these students uh, more and more that they didn't grow up the way I did, then I will start to see success when I can hear more and more stories uh, of communities not being neglected or mistreated. There's more parks and there's more, uh, there's better education and more and more kids are, are going into college. And not only that, the, the retention is great of kids who look like me and, and, and they go into the workforce and, um, you know, and they've been accepted and treated equally. I think that's when I started I was starting to see a little bit more success for those who grew up like I did. Is, do you know of anybody who's tracking these things that they'd say like, all right, well, we started tracking this in 1950 and today we've noticed these changes to parks across America. I mean, is anybody tracking these things to try to have some transformation that can be measured? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, for example, in New York, like every individual, Bowhouse tracks their numbers in general, and then U.S. Rowing tracks their memberships. So the way it works in order to row, you have to be a part of uh, a Bowhouse, and that Bowhouse have to be accountable to U.S. Rowing. So, for example, in New York, you know the organization I work closely with, you know we have 230 kids here, and 90% of them are of color, and 100% of them every year graduate high school, and 96 every year go into college. And so we send those numbers of how many of those kids are rowing in college to U.S. rowing. And U.S. rowing every year will say, hey, you know, these these are the numbers that are growing of people of, of color in the sport. It's very slow. Right. But I believe at this family, you just get a little bit better. But uh, U.S. Rowing actually tracks these numbers. Well, this documentary is very timely, obviously, with all of the Black Lives Matter protests and all of that push that's going on in the U.S. right now. How how are these things fitting together in your world? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it it's fitting together, meaning that, you know, after especially after the, you know, the killing of uh, of of George Floyd, which was hurtful and and and, and really just put a, a extra dent in in our country. I think people are no longer in denial, right, about what's happening in these communities. And right now they are people are pushing to amplify Black voices and Black stories. So that has um, been helpful to me and my team and our film, and not only in our film, uh, and some of the young kids who are rowing now, I, you know, and there's, there's college rower, I mean, college coaches and universities like Princeton and University of Alabama and, and UW that's all reaching out to me and saying, I need to do this. I need to diversify my team. I need to give opportunities. What do I do? And so, you know, it, my world is busy, but I see a lot of opportunities, and, uh, and, and, and so I'm working towards that. So you, you know, grew up on the west side of Chicago. You 
start interacting with white kids in your in high school for the first time you've obviously now like you know been all over the country and i don't know probably all over the world you've seen a lot more uh culture than you did when you were growing up what are some of the virtues that you observe inside of the black community that the white community is missing out on by not knowing about these virtues in the black community yeah i think it's a good question. I think that, you know, it's, it's really, I, I think it's just like what, what we bring the, 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 you know, again, media don't highlight this, but the, like the, the positivity that we bring the, 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 the magic, the, um, the, the brotherhood and sister, the entrepreneurial spirit, the, the hustle, right? Like I always talk about, you know, highlighting the, the young people who are young entrepreneurs out there that are really making it happen in their communities and the uh, that no one's talking about that I think they're missing that can be taught, you know, um, you know, like there's, you know, there's a lot of young people. I had one of our coaches I talked about in the film, Ken, who who saw what was missing in our community, right? He saw all these young people who were drug dealers, right? But had a large leadership and who took risk and made a lot of money. He said, how can I make them to traders? I'm a trader. You know, they, they, they understand risk. They understand how to make money. They know how to build a team. They learn management. They like video games. They, they know math and, you know, and recognizing that talent and bringing them over to a world that's so different. And so I think that a lot of folks don't see that kind of magic that is happening. I, I choose to call it magic. Um, and I think that's a big thing that, you know, sometimes they, they, they don't see culturally. Do you know any stories like that? Guys who grew up on the street, became drug dealers, and then made some transition to Wall Street? I know. Uh, actually, Ken hired a, a couple of a couple of those guys. And, and that was, this was back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Um, um, and I think one guy named was John. I remember these stories when I was young, and I could get to him, uh, talk to Ken about it, but I don't know where they're at now. But I do know there's there's more stories of young people who were drug dealers who moved over to just other jobs of, of management because that talent was spotted at an early age. Are you only doing documentary work, or are you also doing um, fiction? Um. <laughs> No, I think this is the first documentary, <laughs> uh, and I'm, I, you know, I'm working on um, trying to figure out what to work on next. But I tell you what, I I want to do another documentary. Now I haven't really talked much about this, but uh, in, L in 2028, the Olympics will be in LA, and I have a passion for young black men. And there's never been an African American man, male who rode on American soil in the Olympics, and there's only been one woman. That was like um 84 and now I'm, i i want to identify that talent and have them represent our country in that boat so that's something i i, I you know I, I see it i'm working on it and i was like maybe this can be a doc but i've learned a lot by being a part of this doc so i'm trying to see what's next for me well i'll tell you where you should go recruit where? is from guys guys who are washing out of the nba Oh, young guys like wow. you know 20 year old ex-basketball players 22 year old ex-basketball players and put together a uh, a boat of six foot six to six foot ten guys that would be and awesome that's how you go win that's a great idea so 
Right. So, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when you're talking, I, I think that there's actually a screenplay that we should develop around this notion of drug dealers becoming Wall Street traders. You think there's a story there? I think there's a story there. I think there's a story there, Ryan. All right, man. I think look, there's a story. It looks like we're putting something together. <laughs> no, I agree. I think I think I think there's a story based on uh, based on your actual real life experience. Now we're gonna we're gonna make it a little more Hollywood. Yeah. Right. But this this notion that you've got these kids growing up on the west side of Chicago, and this guy who's a trader comes and starts a rowing team, right, at the high school. But while he's uh, starting this team and and coaching you guys up, he starts meeting these local drug dealers. And he then recruits them in and trains them up to be like hedge fund managers. That would be that would be awesome. And I tell you too, if there was this guy in my neighborhood growing up, and he would see young people, he was you know not just because they had holes in their shoes or no food. And he was like, hey, here's some food. There's more. There's more where they come from. You know, talk to me later. He's like, hey, here's your first pair of Jordans, right? If you need, if there are any more of your friends who need them. Tell them to come see me, right? And and if a kid, then eventually they start selling drugs, which is like sad, but they they're surviving. And if they get locked up, you know, he would send money, put money in their books, and he would say, if there's anyone else that need money in their books in prison, tell them to come see me. And when they get out, if they can't find a job, the people who get out can't find a job, they would come see him, and he would like have this large like t- territory and forest in in in, in the city of Chicago, and you know what I mean. But if that guy met uh, a coach like I had had an opportunity like I had imagine what he would do in a city like Chicago. Well, that's what this story is going to be about exactly what they go do. Yeah, exactly. Now then we're, now we're going to have to, you know, decide how, how good or bad they end up. Right. Because money is obviously an exponent on people's character. Yeah. Yeah. And I think these are not like, some of these things are not like bad choices, right? They're hard choices. And you know, when you look at the film, you know, it, it's, you know, like people didn't join gangs because it's like, hey, I want to join a gang. It's like, man, if, if I don't have the help as a loner, I'm, I'm screwed. You know, if, if I can't feed the kids, I'm screwed. And so I think we can touch a little bit on, uh, on the start of, uh, of, of that in the 80s in Chicago. Well, and and that may be part of this this story that we explore, which is you have these a couple drug dealers, let's say, who were very successful drug dealers mm-hmm. who get trained up as hedge fund financier investors. And one of them, you know, they both become very rich, but one of them may become very rich and very evil, and one of them may become very rich and very good. Mm. Right? So maybe it's an entire television series. That, sounds, that good... sounds like a television series. <laughs> right. I like that. Man. I well, really love that idea. Well, I think we should try to work on it and develop it. I think there's a, I think there's legs there. It's a, it's a interesting, fascinating kind of billions meets billions. Um, yes. <laughs> right. Meets new Jack city. Yeah. Let's do it. Well, we'll, we'll, when offline, we'll, we'll start exploring that and see if we can bring some of those worlds together a little bit. Okay. Um, Share with me some of the other things that some of the other lessons you've learned from sports. I mean, obviously, you learned a lot in rowing. Did you play other sports? Yeah, you know what? I, to be honest, um, so you know, there was a lot of violence in the community. So I've been chased, right? I've I had fights, right? And because of that, you just get you get angry and you, you become protective. 
So, and this is from my experience. When I tried out for the basketball, I was athletic. I didn't know how great of a basketball football player I was, but I tried out for basketball. And, it, you know, it's a trash-talking sport. And I would get angry because people would say things that I heard growing up from a teacher or someone at home, like, you're garbage, you suck, you're not going to be good at it. And so it didn't make me feel good, and I always found myself in trouble playing ball. I did when I tried for the football team, you have a coach like, knock them dead. And I'm like, and I, and I want to hurt somebody or someone hit me and I can't get over trying to hurt them back. And it, it just wasn't a good dynamic for me. And that's why I fell in love with rowing because it was non-combative or no conflict. And, you know, you're, it, it, it didn't trigger the trauma. Rowing actually reduced the trauma. And so that's kind of why I stuck with that sport. Are you guys taking this to any of the film festivals? Uh, Are there any film festivals left right now? I don't know. <laughs> I exactly. You know what? We had like South by Southwest. We had e, uh, Ebert Fest. We had so many film festivals uh, lined up and they, you know, started being, you know, canceled one by one. And and so I think we did some virtual film festivals like NAACP and uh, we did do virtual uh, Ebert, Ebert Fest, um, you know, and I think our film director, uh, producers trying to figure out what else they can get us to and what's coming up next. And they're trying to navigate through that. But, um, you know, I'm just kind of sitting waiting and figuring out what's next. What was your budget for this documentary? Honestly, I, I have no idea what the full budget was. To be honest, I think the directors and the producers uh, ha- ha- have that number. Got it. So you didn't, you didn't produce this. I didn't produce it. I was like behind, I kind of helped with with the writing right like hey i think we have a race i think we reach out to the olympic coach i think we do this i think we invite this person i think this person should speak that was kind of, i was just kind of the ideas but behind the scenes the budget that was like the directors and the producers so where do you go from here what's next for you for me what's next is hopefully write another book <laughs> um you know writing is just just so just therapeutic and awesome and, and and full of uh, full of just great joy for me. And not only that, continue speaking, continue to diversify the sport of rowing. And uh, right now we are talking with members of Congress around the issue of trauma and mental health uh, for communities like the West Side. And uh, and so those are the things I'm working with, working on now uh, and the near, very near future. And Far future again is this like twenty twenty eight goal and, and hopefully may do some do some more docs or something. Well, I thought it was very fascinating the section of the documentary that talked about mental health and the difficulty of living in that kind of uncertain environment of West Chicago. Yeah, you know, whenever there's like a mass shooting in like a suburban school, you know, those kind of schools, right away they send in all these trauma counselors in, which which they should, right? And I and I said to myself, wow, like we I seen that stuff almost every day, and there was no trauma counselor, there was no social workers, right? It's one social worker in our school of a thousand, right? We you're young, and you know we we skipped over pools of blood and ran for our lives and lost people before we were fourteen. You experience what a lot of soldiers have experienced in war, but while, while you're young and the brain is still developing, so I think it's very important to be able to talk through those things and try to try to and see some of the things that we've, uh, we've, we've seen. And so I think that is, uh, you know, your brain is just on, it's hard to think into the future when your brain is on that constant survival mode. So I think that is a very important um, 
important um, thing to tackle. Yeah, the PTSD of growing up in that environment and then trying to move beyond. Yeah, you know, and if you if you don't deal with that, you know, I think Charlemagne the God said, if you don't deal with that pain and trauma as a kid, you grow up redistributing that pain and trauma to the people that are close to you. And, and, and it's a real thing. What do you think the important things are going to be in the coming years to try to bring healing to America in these areas of race relations? I think uh, number one is um, really understanding that because of the 400 years of, you know, of, of slavery and, and, and segregation, Jim Crow laws, like that, that, that's the reason why we are where we're at, right? Trying to get folks to not be in denial about that and not only have folks that are not racist, but anti-racist, right? Meaning like we this needs to stop, right? And, and, and how, you know, and the ones who benefited from this horrible situation, how do we invest or reinvest in, in these, these communities, right? And I think when you have an advocate or ally, trust starts, right? And, and, and but that trust comes healing, you know, and and everyone just want equal opportunity, right? They they want to have equal access, right? Like, you know, we couldn't before Ken came to our school, we couldn't just walk into a boat house, right, and say, hey, we want to learn how to row. Well, me and my boys, they were like, no, where's your three hundred dollars a season? And that still happens today, right? So knowing that we can just be a part in everything that's happening and and, and, and what's offered in this country. One of the things I've been trying to figure out is that, you know, America is this incredible experiment in freedom. And we have cultures from all over the world who, who come to America and set up their own little worlds inside of this place called America. And so there's not like a pure Americanness apart from an overarching freedom to be whatever it is you want to be. How much, how much culturally do you want to preserve a, a black separateness and how much do you want to see a melded America that somehow is not necessarily color blind, but maybe beyond ethnicity or culture. It's some sort of blended American culture. Yeah, I just think that it, you know, <laughs> that's a good question. I think, you know, for, for the now, right? I'm thinking of the now, right? Where people live, where they are, these communities have, especially black community, you know, you have to build with what you have, right? You have to find those resources in your communities. You have to heal as a community and find yourself and your confidence back and, and, uh, in your community and get to understand, you know, you know, each other and each other's talents. And, you know, I think there's a lot of power. And remember these like communities, or you think about, about a black historic college, they all were there because they couldn't, they wasn't allowed to go to the other colleges. So I think where, where we at now, we continue to build on what we have and try to bring more resources there. And, and I really believe in that, right? Just, power in each other and i think eventually when we have those resources we have those things right and that openness and build that trust that we have the same that others have you begin when there's when there's equality you begin to reach out then i think um beyond your community right and 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 
and interact with folks that are not like you? I mean, that's such a good question and, 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 and hard question to, to, to tackle. But I think like when I say I want the sport of rowing or I want the Olympic team to reflect the diversity in this country, I have to understand that there's some things that we have to do within each rowing program at each school of those who look like each other um, to understand and get used to the sport and, and learn the lessons of the sport and f- figure out how they fit into the sport. And then we can figure out how to um, uh, interact with other folks. But I mean, the ultimate goal, honestly, is that that we have Dr. King's vision of a beloved community that we can empower each other. We have rights. And then um, together all we, we, you know, we, we have this perfect plan, hopefully, but it's, it's going to take a while and it's going to start with it, just self-empowerment and, and community empowerment with, with each other and family empowerment. And, and then when we have that justice, that equality, and I think things get a little better and people are a little bit more open and we can move forward. Such a beautiful vision. Uh, you know, I think, um, gaining clarity, to that is part of this process and coming to terms with the fact that there isn't a perfect right america is not a land of the perfect in fact atlanta is one of the, or atlanta america is one of the few places where not having a safety net is actually a virtue mm-hmm. because it also means that there's no glass ceiling like it's a it's a very open incredibly opportunistic land mm-hmm. that um, allows for failure and success and allows you to overcome both of those things, right? I mean, overcoming success is a question of human virtue oftentimes. Yeah. And and overcoming failure is a question of human perseverance. Yeah. Uh, But all, and all of these things are possible in an, in an America that provides for so much freedom. So I just find myself reflecting and trying to put all these pieces together and imagine what it is that this world would look like as we continue to, uh, wake up to all of these different elements and and competing uh, notions of what the good life is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we are out of time. I really appreciate you being on the program today, Arshay. Thank you. Uh, it was. I'm I'm proud of what you have created with this documentary, and uh, the story is a story. I think a lot of people will uh, enjoy hearing and and learn a lot from. So thank you for taking the time to not only make this movie, uh, but to come on and, and share with us some of your insight. Thank you so much, Ryan. I'm so glad you guys invited me. Uh, I know you heard the story on NPR and was like, let's, let's talk to this guy. So I appreciate it. And, uh, hopefully we can uh, talk together about, um, writing that screenplay in the future. <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, we, we should really start developing a story out of this, you know, what is a, a truly a fundamentally, excellent narrative that we can then just kind of, you know, Disneyfy a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, that's cool. I I love all these stories and I love these conversations. I think there's nothing but good that's going to come out of analyzing everybody's different growing up experience and different experience in America. Arche, amazing. Thank you for the time. All right. Thank you. I'm Ryan Millsap. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Putting an exclamation point on the end of each podcast, I share inspirational sayings that I write and share on Instagram. In the most twisted way, the things that on this side of true soul fulfillment feel like what would constitute 
a dismantling of one's life, turn out on the other side of awakening to be the very things that were standing in the way of our experiencing the love and joy from the universe that we all have been longing for our entire lives to find. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Thank you.